let's go welcome to another episode of the uru labs podcast from bengaluru ever complained how bad our cities are how bad your commute is you'll get to hear from people who are working to solve these problems in their own way this is your weekly soapbox for urban sustainability so do not forget to like subscribe and share these videos check out the entire podcast library and profiles of the guests on the newly launched website podcast.urulabs.com the archive is there and you can read about the guests as well i am satya sankaran indian cities are facing a massive urban governance challenge and the, and with the way the system works it needs to continually reform to keep pace with the changing times we are going to explore this today with alok prasanna the co-founder and karnataka lead of vidhi center for legal policy which is a think tank researching topics and coming up with policies for governments across the country alok does research on judicial reforms constitutional law urban development and law and technology he writes a monthly column for the economic and political weekly and has published in the indian journal of constitutional law and the national law school of india review apart from the regular mainstream media outlets such as the hindu indian express crawl quint and caravan welcome to the show many thanks many uh, thanks satya i'm glad to be on this podcast sure let's begin with something i saw recently on the internet the manifestos uh, from all parties promise a bigger and better bangalore right uh, one of the parties declared the formation of a bengaluru capital region including many tier 2 cities like chikbalapur dadbalapur on the lines of the national capital region so i was a little curious and just did a little read up the national capital region of delhi has a population of about 46 million it produces 7 to 8% of india's gdp it covers 58000 square kilometers 13 districts of haryana 7 districts of up 2 districts of rajasthan are in it or of course uh, 56% of the total ncr population is still from delhi ncr was created in 1985 almost four decades ago in the same year the bengaluru metropolitan regional development authority or the bmrda as we will call it was created with its jurisdiction over around 8000 square kilometers 8005 actually uh, with it, it includes around 11 planning authorities and uh, eight cities and towns inside it the bmrda creates what is called a structure plan and the planning bodies inside including all the town planning authorities and the cities and all these people create their own master plans based on the structure defined by it. and this already exists today which was done four decades ago you know, 35 38 years ago so the question alok really is when it comes to governance does size really matter for cities the short answer is yes but also that is not the only thing which matters so since we started a little bit on the point of delhi um let's also clarify the legally and constitutionally what the status of delhi is right delhi is not a full fledged state it's not a pure union territory and i say delhi i mean the national capital territory which as you pointed out is one region with one part of the national capital region now complicating factor for delhi and that's true of many national capitals including for example washington dc is that it sits between states and as it has expanded it has expanded into these states so a concept of a national capital region makes eminent sense as a coordinating body and a planning body because as you rightly pointed has to take into account districts of uh, uh, haryana districts of uh, uttar pradesh and i'm pretty sure going forward it is going to stretch into rajasthan as well that is not a problem which bangalore has now bangalore even if we were to take the most expansive definition of quote unquote bangalore if you just say the rural plus bangalore rural plus bangalore urban all of it sits within karnataka it isn't there is no 
interstate national coordination issue here it is the recognition of the fact the thing is that metropolitan regions are defined in a different way from pure municipal areas and that's a global phenomenon and as you pointed it's been happening since 85 in fact post 85 the constitution when the 74th amendment was introduced did introduce the concept of a metropolitan planning committee this committee i think has met a sum total of twice under various governments i i, I looked during part of our research i looked for instances of this of this committee actually meeting i don't think i came across more than one or two instances of this committee actually having met you it's, it's no use creating new entities and new bodies if you are not clear what they're going to do in the seventh see the contrast is in the same constitution the seventh third amendment has a very clear idea that at the base you have a panchayat for a village above it you have a panchayat taluk panchayat for a group of village and then you have a jilla panchayat for at the, at the district level that pyramidal structure which is created in for the context of panchayats somehow doesn't exist for our cities and it's not even that you have to rely only on the constitution for it in fact a lot of what is in our constitution has been taken from various municipal legislation passed by states states create different kind of municipal bodies based on size unfortunately what has happened is that the mega cities that we have today and let's face it bangalore is a mega city it has more than 10 million people as per the latest electoral roll data it probably has nearly 15 16 million people and as and the census would have confirmed that our constitution and our laws don't know how to deal with mega cities there are at least six in india as far as i know uh and maybe a couple of others may have reached the status because we haven't had a census but we have no clear idea how our mega cities supposed to be governed because they grow rapidly uh india is one of those very few countries in the world where the urbanization that's happening is in the mega city range it's not like people are moving from villages to cities of 1 lakh 5 lakh 10 lakh people are moving from villages to city of 1 crore people are going from bihar jharkhand west bengal to a delhi mumbai and a bangalore not even to calcutta not to a patna not to a muzaffarpur or anything so it's we are experiencing something very unique in the history of the world in urbanization and our governance systems have not kept up with it and yes you need to take into again you have to right size the uh, governance with the what you expecting them to do you can't expect a body which deals with the needs of let's say even the metropolitan region of about 2.5 crores it can't get into implementation it can get into planning it can get into resource allocation it can get into coordination but you need effective wards you need levels below wards to make sure that everything that is planned is actually implemented down to the ground and the feedback is goes up plans and resources come down the feedback and implementation go up so so that way you develop this healthy cycle where <clears throat> governance is kind of informed it is informed it's effective it's democratic and it aims to a certain kind of top so i've very briefly outlined this big is a very important factor we cannot expect that a structure which was designed to work for 1 million people is going to necessarily work for 10 million people we can't assume that even in the constitution of india if you look at it when uh, the constitution came into force in 1950 india had a population of i think about 25 crores today we are 125 if not more crores everyone thinks ha our constitution is the same but it's not it has undergone changes and those changes are subtle it's not like somebody has decided to throw out a big chunk of the constitution and replace it the reason why india's federalism today is much stronger than it was in 1950 is also because slowly over the years capacity of the states improved 
the states could bargain with the union government better and get more resources for themselves. And if if you were to you know take a time machine and describe to somebody in the constituent assembly that national tax policy is being set by states and centers sitting together at the table, they would have refused to believe. They say, how is that possible? What role do states have in setting tax policy? They're just supposed to set tax only for their own. How can they sit in a table and decide what should be national tax? It would have been unimaginable for them. But we have been doing it for the last 20 years. Right? So, or, or they would have found it unfathomable that a state government could say no to a treaty because it affected the state. Like, you know, that's what the West Bengal did. Uh, it kind of forced India to renegotiate with Bangladesh, saying our interests are affected. They would have, they would have found it very hard to believe that you won't make Sri Lanka policy without consulting Tamil. But things like that, right? This has changed over the years. And likewise, we have to sort of understand that we just can't expect the existing governance systems to just automatically scale themselves up without some active interventions over a period of time. Because the scale of growth has actually been beyond the imagination of the initial design. So that's that's very interesting. So the constitutional part is something just before the recording, you were saying something about how the municipal level of governance was ignored during the framing, which so so the 74th Amendment, 1992, and then it takes 25 years for us to even set up something of a semblance of a ward committee in Bangalore to even yeah. start rudimentarily discussing all these things. It doesn't even have proper convenings and all that. Look at the time frame in which we've gotten to the municipal level and at the ward level. Even now, I don't know if the state finance commissions are even operational properly in many states. Uh, so where where does all this? So help me understand. In 1952, when all this, when all these constitutional things were happening, was municipal level governance even thought about? And why did it take? What is the trigger in 1992? How do you think? think so let's let's about? go a little further back. Uh -huh. The first experience uh, most Indians have had with a democratic form of government. Uh, forget about, say, sometime in the ancient era when people sat around and selected leaders, right? I'm not talking about something like that. I'm talking about modern government as we understand it, of laws, of constitutions, and so on, actually comes during the colonial era when the British start setting up these small cantonment and municipal boards. In fact, Bangalore is one of the first cities in this country to have had representative elections. They were not uh, open to everyone. There were heavy restrictions, but over a period of time, it slowly expanded, slowly expanded. Uh, you've had, you have these local elections which take place, again, for municipal issues. You have many leaders, for instance, Subhashindra Bosch was the mayor of Kolkata. Nehru was in the uh, Ilhabad uh, municipality. Uh, so was Sardar Patel. And a bunch of them cut their teeth, understood governance by working at in municipal government. And that taught them that, look, activism is great. You develop pragmatism when you actually govern. But very strangely, 1947, when the constitutional process starts, somehow municipalities and panchayats disappear from the discussion. And it's a very puzzling thing because it's not that nobody in this country was talking about it. You have Gandhi whose vision of India is group of loosely connected republics. So that meant... Now, to us, that may seem like a vague idea, but one Gandhian actually sat down and drafted what such a constitution had looked like. Sriman Narayana actually sat down and drafted what a Gandhian constitution has looked like. And yes, I'm not saying it's a perfect constitution. It probably is not even as good as the 1950 constitution that we have. But it presents an alternate vision of what it could have been. And this is an important point that I want to make to our listeners. Our constitution starts with 
fundamental rights duties uh, sorry fundamental rights delegated principles and then immediately goes to union government so its idea of government is union government that is the model taken from the uh, 1930 government of india act right because that was the first time that you had this this model of federalism come through union then states and it stops there whereas the shrimad narayana's idea of a gandhian constitution starts from panchayat municipality then goes to state and then goes to union it this is not just like a simple ordering it tells you the focus of the government how power where power is concentrated where it is distributed to what they're supposed to do and what they're not supposed to do and it's very interesting to me because this constitution this 19 this uh, constitution which existed in parallel with our uh mainstream which is now called a constitution does give powers directly to panchayats does give power directly to municipalities we still haven't gotten there a lot of people imagine that uh, the schedules in the constitution which were added along with the 73rd and 74th amendment give powers to municipalities and panchayats they don't constitutionally and legally all they say is the state governments if they feel like may pass a law grant some powers to municipalities and panchayats Like, this is a big difference. This is a big. This is this is this to me is the big conceptual difference between that constitution, the Gandhian constitution, and the constitution that we have today. And it's very puzzling, and it's something that perhaps maybe historians should explain to us. But as a constitutional a student of constitutional law, as a lawyer, for me it is very. The silence is more affecting than the presence. Why? Why does the constitution not think of the village and the city as sites for governance? And uh, you know, one thought may may come from what Ambedkar thinks about you know our villages. We can't really uh, trust them. They are tens of iniquity, and they might be get captured by the uh, you know better off castes, and they're they're not the places. But it's not as if this wouldn't have received pushback from the constituent assembly. we see so many ideas which are debated and this is this even i sort of learned more as i wrote my column for deccan herald on uh, the you know making of our constitution the ideas expressed in our constituent assembly you know make for a you can basically read history political science of this country just by reading the constituent assembly debates somehow there is no real nobody is saying i don't why doesn't this constitution talk about panchayats and municipalities and to me that is a very puzzling silence in the whole exercise and maybe there are better explanation people who studied history can give a better explanation but that has affected us over the next 40 50 years that not to say nobody did anything afterwards states did devolve powers to panchayats states did allow municipalities to continue for better or worse with more and less powers but 73rd and 74th amendment come in after a serious period of discussion in the previous decade and they undergo many changes actually the ideas come in during rajiv gandhi's time they were called i think the 64th and 65th or 65th and 66th i remember i don't i don't remember the exact numbers uh but they were first introduced there they are diluted a little bit more and they eventually passed the 73rd and 74th amendment um let's also keep in mind the context in which they come in which is that you have this gigantic majority right you have the congress party with the gigantic majority but as one particular a uh, commentator pointed out to me this was a majority without a mandate it's not like they went around like you can say in even in 1971 indira gandhi got a major mandate for garibi hatao or you know in 77 78 you could say constitution bachao or in 80 it was more like desh ko janta party se bachao whatever this was so much more pure emotional vote it was 
there wasn't a specific what do we do with the power that you have given us i don't think even they expected it so a bunch of reforms are carried out which don't have necessarily sound political thinking behind it and this is a topic for an entirely different debate yeah. the anti defection law is one of those <laughs> has unfortunately poisoned our democracy yep but likewise the 73rd what eventually becomes the 73rd 74th amendment starts off during rajiv gandhi's tenure in the 80s the idea is to get states to give more powers or take some powers out of states and give it to municipalities and panchayats but that never really happens parallelly and we should not forget this particular context there is a very remarkable gentleman called abdul nazir saab mm. uh, who is part of uh, ramkrishna hegde's government here in karnataka mm. who pioneers what i think is one of the leading experiments not just i mean he's in karnataka he's known as neer saab for his work in ensuring provision of drinking water but he was also the minister for panchayati raj and the panchayati raj legislation in karnataka was seen as a model for the country mm-hmm. in terms of how it devolved powers to the uh, various uh, levels units at the village level and how it empowered them and so on and that kind of that was happening not just in karnataka but across the country the idea was to take this and make it a nationwide uh, experiment so to speak and we get the 73rd and 74th amendment unfortunately they are very badly drafted the 73rd and 74th amendment mm-hmm. unfortunately 73rd little bit better than the 74th i will still say but the 74th amendment i think is uh, it got diluted to the point that to me it hasn't made any real impact in the country that if at all if there has been any impact it has been purely because of a state government being more visionary more progressive it has not it did not truly think about the needs of urbanization because there's let me also point out the other thing that urbanization in india is a last two decade phenomenon right uh, india did not urbanize as quickly as china did in the 80s and 90s or for that matter most peers in the developing country sector even if uh, even if our uh, what do you call rates of urbanization are relatively low i believe that number is much higher now the 2021 census in my view would have showed that we're at least 40% if not more urban the factors it was just not a concern in that way right it was india in the imagination of our policy makers is still a nation of villages that is changing faster than we can even comprehend so in that way i think it the cities weren't the focus of that amendment cities like they could not have imagined to be very honest that a bangalore would be 15 million people in 2023 when they thought of this particular amendment and you don't have the so as a consequence you don't that because a vision of a city as a site of governance or a even a vision of a village as a site of governance that is missing from the 73rd and 74th amendment and the problem is much greater in the context of the 74th amendment because you just see municipalities and this is where my problem comes in as a constitutional lawyer and a, a worker somebody who works on this the vision if i have to read through the 74th amendment is that a municipality is just an implementing agency mm-hmm. all right it is given certain tasks by the state government it should do those tasks and it should just respond to certain needs at best it does some service delivery whereas when you see around the world municipalities are leading in terms of policy innovations Yeah. Right, and you you mentioned your podcast. You've had people come and talk about transportation. It's not somebody in the central government in these countries sitting and saying, "City of so and so, why don't you do this metro?" Which is what is happening in our country. It is it is a municipality saying, "Our city needs a bus lane, not a metro. Our finances allow us a bus lane, not a metro. So let's do this. Our city should have cycle lanes, not more flyovers. Let's do this. 
our city should have housing for the homeless. Let's do this and not develop more luxury apartments, right? So the p big important policy calls are being taken at the city level. And these are big policy calls. These are not implementation issues. Unfortunately, a lot of people get caught up in the idea that the city just implements or the state government should make policy and city should implement. I think it should be the other way around. State, sure, state government can make a policy for the level of Karnataka. But for Bangalore, it should be the BBMP which makes policy. And when I say policy, I mean making these choices. Should we have electric buses or diesel buses, right? It shouldn't be the central and state government saying Bangalore should have X number of electricity buses, which is ridiculous. It should be the state, it should be the Bangalore municipality which is looking at how much do we tax our advertisements? How much do we tax this? How much do we tax that? Setting it reasonably. Where should we spend our money? Unfortunately, as you and I speak, there is no BBMP. There's no functioning yeah, BBMP. Not for the it is being run by an administrator appointed by the state government. And maybe the gentlemen are doing the best they can, but they're not functioning as a BBMP as far as I'm concerned because the BBMP is supposed to be a representative body. So it's effectively one of India's, I mean, at 16 million, 15, 16 million, we are one of, we are a size of a state. We are probably larger than every Northeast state except the Assam. We are larger than Goa, but we don't have a government. So that's, that's, I think, a fundamental problem. And I think that is something which, when we think about the 73rd and 74th Amendment, we have to start by reimagining them to say, they are supposed to create governments, not implementing bodies. Our panchayats and municipalities are governments, not just implementing bodies. I have a friend, uh, Pranay Kotastane, who's written this mm. fantastic book on, and I may have, I may have had him on his podcast. He talks about how India just doesn't have a union and state governments. India has three lakh governments or seven lakh governments, whatever the number is. Because each, each body is actually supposed to function like a government. If it is supposed to deliver, it cannot just be seen as, it does this on the instructions of state or something. There are lots of things to deep dive here. So, mm. like you said, urbanization has been planned during each of the five-year plans. You look at, they started with Chandigarh as soon as the partition was over. And then they said, okay, let's create a few more cities. Then a few more. Then they said 2,000. So, there has always been, and then the housing, trying to do housing and then privatizing that. So, the, I can see the evolution of trying to do something around urbanization in those plan periods across the time but like you said it has never been thought of as something the local government should do the plans were there and they said okay i'll give you some money go and build some cities here yeah even now uh, even though there is an intention to say that how do we have self-governance it has gone only to the implementation portion yeah that brings a few questions to mind one is okay why do you think is easily answerable they just don't want to do it the, because like Bangalore has too much of uh, money in it for them to let go, right? So the, what would we do to make these things happen? Is there any, what is the thinking uh, that we should have self-empowered government where the decisions are being made, where the revenues are being counted, where the expenditure is being done and as much as possible self-sufficient in, in the entire uh, governance period and not just making you dependent on the grants as the major portion right now none yeah. of the corporations are even able to raise a bond their credit rating is horrible because you don't even know where you can raise the money from how much you can raise zero ability to manage finances uh, but the planning side they had the right ideas i'm not saying that let's let's assume the bbmp doesn't need to plan and they still maybe continue to execute there's already the metropolitan planning committee which was set up as per what 
the 74th amendment said be it what is it said something and then the bmrda was created almost 40 years ago in four decades you have not been able to make any of these things work why isn't the mpc not working what do you think needs to be done let's let, let's begin that way we'll come back to the question of small big again sure, sure but i just want to touch upon this how do we make these things happen it's it, we know it's not happening we know why else why also yeah but what should we do uh let me start with a, another thing which is working against us right now one problem which we haven't yet identified which is working against us paradoxically is delimitation Mm. Um, since elections are tomorrow, Bangalore gets 28 seats yeah. out of an assembly of 227. Now, if the statistics are correct, one in four, one in five people in Karnataka live in Bangalore. Mm. Yet, Bangalore gets only 10% or little more than 10% of our seats, which means as a city, we are underrepresented. And this becomes even more stark when you see the size of the uh, uh, constituencies. Uh, the core areas in Bangalore, the constituency sizes are between one and a half to two lakhs, which is okay. The outer areas, Brat, Byatranpura, Madhevpura, uh, South Bangalore, uh, Raj Rajeshwari Nagra, it's ridiculous. Massive. You have eight lakh voters, you have six to eight lakh voters in an assembly, in an assembly election. That is ridiculous. That is, uh, you know, uh, almost becoming MP level, um, I mean, Lok Sabha level. And unfortunately, even if the state government says this is very bad, they can't do anything about it. So this is an outer constraint that, to be very honest, those of us in Bangalore cannot fix. It is a national issue. And I know there are people are very afraid of what will happen if a delimitation happens. But I say here is an opportunity for us to seize the narrative. Mm. Say delimitation should happen to really empower cities. Mm. Instead of worrying about how much Karnataka will get or Tamil Nadu will lose or some other state will get or lose. Let's talk about how it could actually benefit a city like Bangalore to be represented at par with the rest of Karnataka. Yeah, if we can seize that narrative and say delimitation should happen not 10 years from now, but tomorrow, because that is our pressing need, we change the narrative on this whole discussion. And we have to acknowledge that this is a problem standing in our way. You cannot expect a, a well-meaning state government also to say, I will ignore my votes which come from the rest of the, or my MLAs who come from the rest of the state, right, in favor of you guys. And not to say that they completely ignore either way. But the way the incentives are structured, the way the incentives are structured, it is telling them that you'll get more bang for your buck, so to speak, if you put your money and effort outside Bangalore. Because in Bangalore, it's captured. You, 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 you cannot hope to sort of get mobilize MLAs or anything to get something done for Bangalore. So that is a problem we have to accept and understand and know and talk about delimitation also as a way to address our solution, to address this problem and as a solution. But coming down to the next level, in my experience, uh, and we work on various issues of legal reform, you will rarely find a situation where somebody proposes a solution, government says, great, let's do it. And it happens. Most times what happens is that a solution is part of a discussion for years and years and years. And it builds up public support. It builds up, you know, people sort of understanding, being aware, knowing why this is a solution, why this is a solution. And a right political movement will come for it. That is where you'll have to seize it. The open window. Yeah, it is, it is, it, it, it is never that you will convince one political party to do it and they will do it. You will get the right political movement where somebody feels, okay, I can deliver on this. Is there support for it? 
and you have to seize it, right? And what does seizing it mean? Seizing it means being willing to work with the government on it, being willing to sort of mobilize public opinion for it and say why this is a great idea in whatever way, up to our capacities. It's never going to be that we will put these words in the ears of any chief ministerial candidate and they will go out and do it. It doesn't work there. I can give you examples from what we at Vidhi have been involved in, right? For years and years, people knew bankruptcy law in India is broken. It's outdated. It's not helping us. And we, among others, have been have, have been saying for that, you know, this is how the law should change. This is how the law should change. But in 2014, when you had a government which come in with a majority for the first time in two decades, and you had that pressure built up to a level, and it came on the promise of we will improve economic performance. You could make the argument that, listen, the banks need to be fixed on this. This needs to be fixed. Even then, progress was stuck until a certain Mr. Malia decided to flee the country. Right? You no longer you realize, okay, this whole idea of we we'll throw these uh, bad uh, businessmen in jail and sort the problem out, you realize doesn't work. You realize your banking system needs reform. That gave that final push, that final push. So it took years. It took years from that idea becoming acceptable, that idea for gaining currency in certain. Finally, that legislative push happened when that moment was right. So to that extent, and likewise with say the BBMP Act, we were also involved in it. It was been it's been in the idea has been in circulation for a decade or more, right? The fact is that at one moment when you know the state government said we want to do this for whatever reason, seize the opportunity, work with the government, say okay fine, we may not agree with. A lot of this, we may think it, it could have been much better, but this is a start. Let's push it to make it happen. Let's push it to make it happen. Because none of these are easily fixable problems. Let's also accept that. These are problems which take generations to address. If we start today, maybe in about 20, 30 years, we will see that, you know, but that's also what makes a democracy that you feel that one, I'm making a few better future, even I may not end up seeing, but it's worth it because future generations will still be grateful for it. So in that way, if we have to address these problems, we have to put these ideas out there in circulation. Correct. We have to put these ideas in circulation to say, this is what it takes. This is what it is needed. This is what has to be done. This is what has to be done. It, it, it's, it's not going to see immediate progress. It is, you have to be willing to work with the political class to say, listen, I know I may not get 100%, but if you can give me 50%, it's great. Please accept at least this much. Then there will come that point when it will flip and something will happen. And at that moment, you have to be ready to engage. You have to be ready to say, I'll help you with this. I will come and draft. I will take this to people. I will come and discuss it. And then be further involved, be further involved, be further involved. So one thing which I, the, what I sort of come to is that we cannot separate the questions of democracy and urban governance. To me, democracy, I mean, urban governance is grassroots democracy. It is what will keep democracy in this country alive for decades and decades, no matter who comes to power, who doesn't. Because when you have an active and engaged citizenry who is not just debating about what is happening in Delhi, but if, you know, like I live in Vayali Kaval, you know, which is Palace Kutahali Ward. If every two weeks as part of a ward or if every month as part of a ward committee, I am getting together with my neighbors to discuss and debate issues like water was stopped here or this road needs to be fixed or get the Bescom guy. They have really messed up this big thing or we should do this for our park or we should... Make sure that the trees are maintained in this way. And by the way, why is garbage collection not happening on time? All of those sounds like, yeah, these are petty things. Who cares? It's not. That's that right. is actually what makes democracy strong, right? Because this belief that uh, issues need to be addressed by sitting together, discussing, by kind of engaging consistently with the government, making your views heard, being willing to hear others' views, 
constantly believing this is the way forward. None of us can fix the problem ourselves or expect some app to solve the problem as, as Bangalore solution to everything. That is what makes democracy. And when this urban governance has these roots and works its way up, right? When tomorrow, say my local MLA starts taking this or local corporator, forget MLA, corporator starts taking these ward committee meetings seriously and the MLA takes the corporator seriously, then the state government is going to take the MLA seriously, right? So in that way, we kind of, and as citizens of the city, as people living in the city, we are not going to get this fixed by one magic solution, which happens, say, in wherever, in the Delhi or in uh, Vidhan Sauda. It is, there is some element to that. Some part of it they will have to make. But we will have to learn to engage on a more sustained, direct, day-to-day basis with the institutions of government. And I think that is the real way in which we're going to fix this for a longer period of time. That's a beautiful thought because what you're saying is the boring day-to-day engagement by citizens. Yeah actively and not yes. just about the complaining it's about complaining in the right forums and getting there talking to people meeting their corporate or meeting their neighbors together physically those boring acts on a repeated basis build a narrative yes that helps you understand your local issues better and actually start relating to how you vote somehow i find yeah. that connection because right now since you're disconnected you're saying i'll vote on some foreign policy strategy for a local yes. election right i mean <laughs> because that's so easily stealable from you that narrative yeah. Yeah. because you can anyway never get your local issues fixed somehow mm. you find that the, the prime minister is going to fix your plumbing that's what i call it yeah right? it, it kind <laughs> of ends up that line is drawn completely off yes. off off the whack right yeah so these boring acts, however, of engagement require those structures to be receptive exactly. if you don't hold a ward committee. So yeah. it's it's good that my previous podcast with Srinu also said mm. that there was a lot of work done by a few of them Yes. again and again to hold the meeting, hold yes. the meeting, hold the yes. meeting. Yes. doesn't matter whether you discuss or not, get the habit of holding those meetings again and again on those times. Yeah. Whoever yeah. turns up, two people turn yeah. up, just hold the meeting. Yeah. Now, be that as it may, while that happens in parallel to build some traction, the rhetoric of Bangalore capital region, look, Delhi is this big thing. And it's, the details get missed out. They don't get yeah. to know. And that's one of the attempts here is to say, how do we deconstruct some of this and continue to have this conversation again and again on many small aspects of, please don't misunderstand this. The mm. rhetoric is there for you to capture your imagination. Mm. But the devil is in the details. Yes. Coming back to... Uh, just a size issue one last time and saying, mm. okay, the rhetoric is good to capture people's imagination. There is also the flip side of local governance. Mm. The US cities, each city has its own right. You could call it democracy, but then they say the consolidated planning there is broken. Let's say you want mm. a rail system or trans- transportation systems are typical examples of how interconnectedness can't be held hostage by a small city or a small area saying no thoroughfare. Yeah. Uh, right, so that that interconnectedness will fail, but there's always checks and balances around that, right? So is that even a argument for saying planning has to happen? Everybody, all of us yeah. agree, planning has to happen at the macro level. It cannot happen. So for that, you don't need that rhetorical title, the Bengaluru Metropolitan Regional Development Authority, for what it is. What can be empowered today? The MPC can be empowered today to do the planning, yeah, and hold that as minimum guarantees that you want. So, so do you think it holds? The argument holds good that small cities or smaller because the Bangalore governance bill asked uh, BBMP to be split even further, mm-hmm. uh, having a 
bigger BBM, but that's already happening. The BBMP yeah. commissioner, for example, is now called the chief commissioner and there are yes. already zonal yes. commissioners. Yes. Administratively, it's happening. Uh, but do you think there is an argument to saying that decentralization will lead to more chaos in coordination because today we already have chaos in coordination? Not so much, not so much. Because again, consider the size of Bangalore. We are talking and, you know, I grew up here, Satya. And uh, for me, it's still hard. I spent about 15 years of my life outside Bangalore. And when I came back, for me, it is hard to comprehend what is Bangalore, right? In my head, the boundaries of the city end at that old ring road area. But now I realize that is considered the core of the city. (laughs) There are huge areas outside of it. In that context, you can't expect one BBMP to be able to address everything, right? The ideal structure, according to me, and I laid out how I think this should work, is you have a metropolitan area committee, right? Which takes into account economically, which is the economically, geographically, the larger idea is to, which is the area we should make plans for, right? Where, which, like, uh, and there's a better concept in this in urban planning, which I'm not just missing out, but like, which are the areas you're most likely to interact with, right? Like a Bangalore doesn't interact so much with Mysore, I say, perhaps with Chikbalapur, as you sort of say. So you find that area and you make plans for that area. And those plans will be everything from how many ring roads, rail connections, where will the water come? Because obviously Bangalore is not going to get its water from groundwater. It's going to run out. Where will the water come? Where will the electricity come? Where will the plants be? And so on and so forth. And that's broadly at the planning level. Next, you'll come to the actual municipality, right? So, but Chikbalapur will not lose its municipality because there is a metropolitan uh, planning authority. You will have a BBMP and you will have a Chikbalapur uh, municipality, uh, maybe uh, something uh, for Ra- Ra- uh, Ramnagra and so on and so forth. BBMP itself cannot work in the same way as a Chikbalapur or a Ramnagra municipality. BBMP is, the air it covers is too big, too complex, economically too well developed that it can be done. So, it needs to be, there needs to be administrative divisions. And those administrative decisions should be able to take calls in things which affect them. So BBMP could set a property tax policy, but supposing you want to approve an STP, it shouldn't be left to the BBMP level. Like the BBMP knows we need X number of STPs in Bangalore. But where in that particular, which part of Bangalore, perhaps which area in the particular region of Bangalore should be left to a zonal committee. Below the zonal committee should be the wards. Because uh, the wards actually are the next level of the representative government, so to speak, where you have, where you elect people who can speak for your ward. Below the ward, you should have the ward committee, which feeds into the wards. The ward committee should also be involved with various levels of implementation. So you sort of have this multi-tiered structure and Kerala even has something called an area sabha, which is a few streets together where people get together and talk about issues of a few streets. You may not want to give them formal legal powers or anything. But just have them as entities that you consult with, have them as entities for people to come together, hold regular meetings about, or, you know, some money that they can get to spend on something which is tangibly, which improves the area. So I don't see this as splitting. I see this as giving the right levels of uh, power and responsibility at each level. Because one thing we have to remember with where the 74th Amendment fundamentally fails is that you give the responsibility of being a government, uh, something like a government to a municipality or a municipal corporation, but you don't give them all the powers. A state, on the other hand, according to me, has a fairly right mixture of responsibility and power. You hold your state accountable for education policy, health policy, social welfare, agriculture, water, 
and they have the power under the constitution to deliver on all of these things they don't need to be reliant on the union government for everything but we don't we say you know municipality deliver on solid waste we deliver on this deliver on uh, local upon public health care and we don't give them enough power to be able to do this hmm. so what really the way we need to understand is that each element in this structure needs to have a good match of power and responsibility if you are saying that your job is only planning and coordination the only power you need to have is the power to say please come for our meetings that's it hmm. right when to hold the meetings and you don't need to hold maybe monthly meetings also once in a few months you need to have somebody who can actually call the people and say come for the meeting and maybe the expertise to be able to drop these municipal area plans hmm. uh but likewise if your ward is the place where you go to to get issues relating to water and this thing addressed you give powers to the ward level for a corporator to be able to address some of these issues or maybe you want to sort of just want the corporator to be someone who will raise these issues but a ward committee might be the one which will demand more day to day accountability from the bescom guy or from the bwssp guy or from the mtc or whoever else it is so i mean without getting into too much of the specific details how i want our listeners to think about is at each level we have to think what should be their responsibility and what are the powers we should give them to be able to effectively carry out their responsibilities because for some things it is only possible if you do it at that level but implementation also cannot be the same responsibility at the same level so this equation changes as you go further and further down ward committees are going to set policy for bank ward committee is going to be involved with certain very specific very local kind of issues you give them appropriate finances appropriate power on that respect so in that way a city the size of bangalore needs this kind of thing and we will have to be comfortable with the fact that sometimes this will go wrong sometimes people will make choices that we don't agree with but the response to that will have to be political rather than just saying oh this whole thing is a waste let's go to the state government to fix it when we sort of say that the state government has made a bad policy choice we vote them out in like whatever 5 years or whenever the next election happens and likewise you have to start thinking of a bbmp or your local ward your corporator act in that way that these are also government they are not just the implementing form of the government where you go and complain to their boss if they don't do something right right so you have to be able to see them as government and think of them as government and respond to them as government so which is where i sort of see that the structure needs to change this way i think there's an effort which has been made in the bbmp act which we were also part of which mm-hmm. we were involved in i think there is definitely scope for much more improvement in that legislation and that has to be part of more public discussion and i'm sure that will happen over the course of the next few years uh, but at least a start has been made and if people see the bbmp act and wa- wonder what is happening i want them to try and understand this is the kind of design that is being attempted that you just cannot have one bbmp and what and everything else is sorted out you need a bbmp you need zonal committees you need ward com- wards you need ward committees you may even need other consultative bodies you may need there's something called an mla uh, uh, consultative uh, committee which is nothing but to you know just say if at this level this can be addressed can we sure. go to the mla some formal structure for the mla to come and say and they are involved today they are involved we can't today to say that no mla in bangalore is involved in addressing urban issues maybe there needs to be a structure where it's clear that at these issues you can take to mla mm-hmm. or these issues you address at this level itself so whatever it is we need to have this nuanced understanding of various levels what each level does and how to engage with each level of uh, municipal government so <clears throat> before we conclude with some thoughts i wanted to ask about how do we make 
the BBMP elections be held. Of course, we don't like the term of the mayor here. Mm. He or she is not even accountable to delivering anything. Mm. What are the reforms at the BBMP? Of course, some other cities have better empowered mayors or it should not be personality driven. Where, what do you see there uh, in terms of getting the BBMP elections done and maybe transforming? How far away on the window are we on that, making that happen? Because it seems to be easily extinguishable and nobody is interested in, oh yeah, we can get the job. Like you said, we didn't feel a thing. There was no protest. There was nothing. I mean, a few people did ask, how do we make that more critical that it can't be extinguished so easily? So let's go back to the constitutional design. Uh, when and it's not as if the union cannot extinguish state governments, sure. right? There is a constitutional provision for it. In the first three four decades of our constitution, it was a power which was routinely exercised until 1994. Supreme Court judgment in S R Bombay versus Union of India, which said you cannot use this power unless certain very specific things happen. And by the way, this can always be checked by the judiciary. If you, and as we have seen in the last few years, if you use this power wrong, we will restore the state government. The court has put its money where its mouth is on multiple occasions and shown that it will do that, which has meant that union government has taken. And this is verifiable data. I wrote about this. This is publicly available data. There's a dramatic fall in how the union invokes president's rule at a state level post this judgment. And it's not just this judgment. The other thing which changes the larger politics of federalism in this country, right? And, you know, states were able to assert themselves in the context of uh, coalition governments. All of that is there. That is a political process which has happened by itself. Immediately replicating that is a little difficult for city governments. I will say that up front. But the solution also perhaps lies constitutionally. The solution lies when you sort of say that you can only extinguish a city government in exceptional emergency circumstances. Like say a council is not able to run because of no majority or uh, some emergency situation happens where you feel that this will not be capable of being handled. I don't see that many emergency situations to be very honest. Yeah, It can only be when you cannot form a government and council in, at the city municipality stage. So therefore, and see, this is this is where the fundamental design flaw of the 74th Amendment comes into the picture. Hmm. Because you didn't give them powers. You said state government give power, state government can take back those powers. It's not as if certain essential functions will stop. Because even in president's rule, I honestly think the union would rather not run a state the size of, say, Karnataka, right? Or any, any sizable state. You cannot. More than six months, you can only treat it as an emergency and hold elections immediately. Right. So, which is where I think constitutionally the design has to be, the term will be five years. The state election commission will be completely independent. It will not be dependent on a state law to make them independent. Mm. The state finance commission will be completely independent. It will not depend on a state law to make them independent. And if you, you know, sort of uh, take away, or rather if you extinguish a municipality, it is going to be such a difficult effort to run the municipality for you as a state that the immediate thing that will do is hold elections. Right. So, which also means that the municipality's capacity needs to be improved. It should be that most things actually happen at the municipality level, that the state feels like, boss, this is just too complicated. We may have done it for some emergency situation. Mm. Let's hold elections as quickly as possible. So, the representatives are placed. BBMP can run on its own and we can step back on it. So, it comes from treating, to go back to something which I said, it comes from treating a municipality as a government. We get upset when the state government, there's unjustified president's rule, let's say. 
all right i mean you could make the argument that what's happening in manipur is a justified case of president's rule but they're holding their hand saying okay maybe it can be resolved in other ways right but if they had to if they imposed president's rule a couple of days ago in manipur i wouldn't have said it's unconstitutional i would have said you are seeing that kind of wide scale large scale breakdown of law and order that no court would have said is unjustified or nobody can say is unjustified but okay you, you 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 chose otherwise but suppose tomorrow if uh, the union government says we don't like the results in karnataka let's impose presidential and try this again obviously people will be annoyed and upset and uh, yeah. outraged right but it also comes from treating this level of government the state government as a legitimate government under the constitution as opposed to just a municipality or just a panchayat we have to get out of that and that once that mindset changes the constitution has to change to reflect this i think the 73rd and 74th have to recognize panchayats and municipalities as legitimate forms of government as legitimate levels of government given their own powers to make laws given their own powers to fund uh, themselves given their own specific executive powers and of course you will have the state government about to take care of something which is beyond their ambit but if we don't define these levels of government as government you can't tinker around with the provisions or anything else or even a larger movement you can't tinker you can't get people convinced if like you're going to they're going to completely continue functioning as just implementation agencies of the state and central government so then would it be fair to say that the it's in the corporators hands to make themselves too big to fail not necessarily i think mm-hmm. they do play one role in it but they cannot beyond a point of time they cannot say for instance i mean obviously they can't amend the constitution the constitution needs to be amended to say municipalities only municipalities will have certain powers in exceptional situations state may take these powers but on a regular day to day basis only municipality will have these powers to make these laws only municipality will have the powers to raise these taxes only the municipality will have the power to make these policies and implement them once that framework is put in the corporators will make themselves too big to fail let me put it that way right once that once that particular level of once that change happens in the governance and in the mentality the it will flow downstream into that so where is that at so where do you put that in and where is what what state is it in that you are going to get those clauses into yeah so and i think this is perhaps where i go back to something which i also mentioned earlier we shouldn't see this as a purely bangalore problem i know your your podcast no. says uru labs and specifically no no, no. it's all over <laughs> it's, it's it's all over right urban yeah. governance problem it's an urban governance problem and i think perhaps at the time here is for various civic movements to make these connections across the country mm-hmm. right if we can get a convening of say people in delhi bombay bangalore calcutta chennai hyderabad ahmedabad and all of us can come together on a certain kind of we want to see these larger f- changes mm-hmm. in the governance framework at the constitution level uh, because all of these are affecting us maybe in slightly different ways but the origin is the same right right uh i do think and this is where you know i again something which i mentioned earlier india has urbanized faster than even the government has imagined true and then i suddenly find that the questions of urban governance have a resonance far beyond just bangalore and the mega cities mm. we may suddenly find that this issue gets taken up like wildfire in a way we did not expect so let me end with like a positive story in uh, one of my most heartening days as a public policy professional was when i was uh, invited by the karnataka government hmm. to be part of a panel which assessed governance measures at city level 
So there's something called the City Managers Association of Karnataka, which is a group of administrators. And every two years, I think it kind of got disrupted by COVID. Mm -hmm. But every two years, they would hold a contest among cities of various sizes in Karnataka on new initiatives that they have introduced, Mm. how they have worked, and they give prizes to the best initiate. And I, I went with no expectations. But the width and the imagination and the concern which concerns which informed these initiatives, I was blown up because this was a way this like we are all we only live with our problems. We think our problems are intractable. But when you see that you have not just an engaged citizenry, but a responsive government at so many levels in this in the state, forget country at the state, you will be like, oh my God, these are none of these are unsolvable problems. If we found a way to not make these only Bangalore problems. If we went to uh, uh, Mangalore, if we went to a small town like Kaup, or if we went to somewhere in, uh, you know, uh, Ballari or ever, and just learn to talk to all the people who face these same. And I think Janagra is doing fantastic work on that front, at least with municipal corporations. We'll realize actually the people who share our concerns are probably 10, if not 100x more than who we thought shared these concerns. And the people from the other side who want to respond to this, we may be hitting a wall consistently here in Bangalore. You may find this is what responsive governance looks like. Mm. This is maybe the level at which we should, you know, aim our interventions or aim our discourse at. And just the level of enthusiasm with which people in government came to make these presentations to show how it had worked, how they had engaged with the local people, how they were able to show measurable results. It told me that for whatever problems, something about this country works in a way none of us expect it to in most ways, in, in, in a lot of times. And I think we have to channel that. What is it that is making all of this work? What is it that is driving this level of close engagement, this close responsiveness? And how do we scale it up? Really, that's the problem that we are facing. So I, I would sort of say that what is perhaps needed is both that we widen this conversation we kind of don't see it as a pure urban governance issue, but a democracy issue. That whatever the solutions that we are asking for is to make India's democracy deeper and long-lasting and stronger. And not just because, you know, it leads to better roads for us or more stable water or electricity supply. Those are all the, those are all the consequences of a responsive, empowered, effective municipal government. On that wonderful note that consequences matter to people, and the framework matters to everybody. Uh, I would like to thank you for coming on the show. I'd like to have a separate conversation with you again on uh, many of these issues. Sure. So we can deep dive in a separate episode. Thanks a lot for coming on the show. Absolutely. Anytime, Satya. It was always a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And I hope to be back soon. Thanks, everyone. See you all next week. Bye. See you. Bye-bye.